Welcome back to the Skift Ideas Podcast. Today, Colin is joined by Mark Van Honecker, a commercial pilot for British Airways and the best-selling author of Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot, How to Land a Plane, and Imagine a City. With Mark's extensive experience and first-hand insights into the realm of aviation, Colin and Mark will explore some of the more poetic and ethereal experiences from 35,000 feet above the ground to the worldview that Mark has from connecting with people in cities globally. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Skift Ideas podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Colin Nagy, and we have a very exciting episode for you today. I'm excited to be joined by Mark Van Honecker. He's a commercial airline pilot for British Airways and the author of a fantastic book called Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot and how to land a plane. He's been a columnist for the Financial Times and a regular contributor to the New York Times and also has written for the Times UK, the Atlantic Wired, and the Los Angeles Times. Born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Mark trained as a historian and worked as a management consultant before starting his flight training in Britain in 2001. He now flies the Boeing 787 Dreamliner from London to cities around the world. Uh, Mark, we're super, super happy to have you with us today. Oh, I'm really happy to be here, Colin, and I'm a huge fan of Skift. So it's a yeah, it's a special day. Awesome. Well, thank you for thank you for being here. I've been a fan of the books for a long time. Um, so wanted to kick off, and you know, you had a different career path um, kind of coming up, but just give us a little bit of the background of how you became a pilot, and uh, and and you know, some of those examples of of intrigue and what really piqued your interest at, uh, when you were young. So, so growing up uh, in in Pittsfield, uh, uh, that small city in Western Massachusetts, I, I was, you know, in love with airplanes. It's airplanes are the first thing I remember loving uh, as a kid, or really capturing my my interest as a kid. I, I had tons of model airplanes. I, I loved to go to air shows with my dad. Uh, I had books about planes. Uh, every time we flew, we didn't fly all that often, but when we did, it, it was far more exciting to me to be on the plane than, than to get off it. Um, it was just that classic, uh, you know, love for the window seat and the view. And, um, and I was also, uh, uh, you know, in love with maps as well. I had one of those illuminated globes in my room and an atlas um, that I turned to. Uh, and I would, you know, read off the, the, the cities on there that were, you know, just names to me, nothing more than names, but, you know, super evocative names, uh, Cape Town for one, um, uh, Hong Kong, Sydney, Vancouver, Rio de Janeiro, all these places that I never thought I'd see. Um, and so those two interests uh, were kind of with me all through my childhood. But, uh, you know, aviation does run in families, um, but it didn't really run in my family. Um, and so I didn't, if I, if my father or mother or another relative had been a pilot, maybe I would have come to the career much sooner than I did. Uh, instead, I, I went to college and grad school. I, I started a, a PhD in history, but I never finished it. Um, um, and then uh, I decided to, to become an airline pilot. Uh, and but in order to save money for it, I um, I took an office job, uh, I, and I went into that consulting job because I, I knew it was one where I'd fly a lot. So, you know, they had, uh, that company had an office uh, right in Boston on the waterfront with a great view of Logan Airport. Um, so I spent most of my time either on planes or watching planes. Um, and then a few years after that, I, I got onto a cadet training program uh, just before 9-11. 
Um, and uh, that was, you know, it's that classic tale of a, of a dream come true, I guess. Uh, I get a lot of emails from readers who, 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 who use that phrase, a dream come true, and that's still what it feels like to me. Uh, and I started uh, on the uh, A320 fleet at Heathrow. Uh, my first flight was actually just over 20 years ago from Heathrow to Glasgow. Uh, and then in 2007, I switched to the 747, which was the plane I uh, dreamed of flying as a kid. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Um, and then uh, five years ago, I switched to the 787, which is what I fly now. I, I loved reading about, um, I believe you were picking up a family member or a friend at Kennedy and you saw, I believe it was like the Saudi, um, like tailfin, you know, and, and that was like one of your first memories of, of something that you didn't quite understand. And, and it's, it's routine going back and forth to this far flung place was like your routine of like walking back and forth to school. So I, I love that early taste of, of kind of the world and the mysteries of it, you know, as, as you were, as you were young. Yeah. You know, I, uh, Many of your listeners who are uh, my age or a little bit older will remember the um, the old Pan Am Worldport, that terminal at JFK, which has been uh, which has been you know gone for years now. But we I remember parking on it with my dad, and and uh, we were going to pick up a relative coming from Belgium, and you know just just the idea of going to Kennedy for the day for a few hours to look at those planes and and think you know to look at those departure screens and think of the places they were coming from or going to. Uh, was uh you know you know was just was just magical it was absolutely magical to me now as you went into the cadet program you know what was that first time sort of power you know being under control um of of an aircraft whether that was you know with an instructor or whatever just tell me about the feeling of that because there's a lot of people that like flying in aviation but then when they try their hand at the uh at the real thing, it can be a little overwhelming. So how did you talk me through that a little bit? Was it love at first experience or was it a little uh, overwhelming? You know, the uh, a pilot's career, um, it has a number of, of firsts. Uh, so, you're, you know, there's your first lesson. And for me, that had happened when I was 16 or 17 uh, in, in Western Massachusetts. And uh, and that was a flight over my hometown I'm from Pittsfield Airport. And uh, you know that hometown uh, plays a, a big role in the new book. Imagine the city, but that that view of my of my home from above. You know, to suddenly look down on your on your own uh, on your own streets and like, oh my, oh my God, that's my high school and that's my dad's office and that's my the school where my mom works and uh, to, and, those, and oh, I know that hill. I know that road. I, I didn't know that road went that way. And you know that sense of seeing the world from above, which you know completely trans. I mean, it's that. That revel that was a revelation in the early 20th century that you know really changed the way uh, you know we literally we saw ourselves and saw ourselves as, as a species and I think everyone who flies has you know a moment of that kind of um, species level wonder the first time they fly um, and then you know the other milestones I guess were the first time I did a solo flight so that was in Arizona. Um, and again, you know, that's that's a feeling you, you just never forget the first time your instructor gets out of the aircraft and, and, and you head off and um, uh, and, you know, and you do your, your three touch and go landings uh, and, you know, that sense that you're, uh, you know, that you've learned enough and you have enough training now to 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 be up there safely is is, you know, is, is a really wonderful feeling and it, and it gives you a great sense of accomplishment. Um, 
I remember my first night flight as well. I mean, um, one of my favorite things to see from above, e even now from an airliner, are, is cities from above uh, at night. Um, and the first time I flew at night, which was also in Arizona, um, and to look down on a on a cityscape, and you know, Arizona, the you know, the air there is so dry, and and so the and the city is so sprawling. It's like a mini Los Angeles, or not so many these days. And um, to to suddenly rise above it and to see it stretching out like this microchip off to the hills uh, was was a major feeling. And then of course, there's the first flights uh, on an airliner. Uh, so my first flight on a obviously we spent a lot of time in the simulator training. And those simulators are as good as the aircraft for training. But nevertheless, we did have a day where we took an Airbus to France for the day, uh, me and five or six other trainees and a couple uh, examiners or trainers. Um, and uh, so there were those first flights of an actual airliner, uh, which were which were incredible. And then, of course, a few days later, the first ones with with customers on board, uh, where you're you know finally earning your keep as a pilot. Uh, so there's many levels to, to the way that dream can come true. Um, and uh, um yeah that's my um that that's been my path do you, do you remember your first flight do you remember your very first flight as a passenger or you know i just remember i grew up in near san francisco and i just remember waking up very early with my family you know and 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 driving in and at that point we were kind of like a united family so rhapsody in blue you know, is the kind of theme song for right, just right. that kind of that kind of era of early '80s sort of California SFO um, optimism, which was which is kind of what I what I remember. And and what's actually quite poignant is we had an exchange student actually from Belgium um, when I was when I was in high school, and he was like, "I'm going to be a pilot," and you know, everyone's kind of razzing him like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." But he went back. Um, I believe he got most of his hours in the Belgian Air Force, and then uh, flew for Sabina or the national carrier, now defunct, and then uh, was with Emirates um, for a long time. And so uh, my mom was kind of his rock, you know, when he was a young Belgian kid studying in a faraway land. And so I brought my mom to Dubai on a trip, and we got to spend time with him and. And it was it was very nice. It was a very nice kind of way to close the loop. And yeah, also someone, yeah. he he kind of had this hero's journey of of some doing something that's difficult, which I think was great. But switching gears a little bit to what you touched on, which is the sort of the the geography and and almost the poetry of seeing the world from a different vantage point. It's what I really really loved in skyfaring is that. It, it kind of makes the hair stand up on my arm thinking about some of those passages because you very evocatively write about flying through the air at night and almost these comforting things, these familiar things were what you describe as, as waypoints. And I would love for you to just kind of talk about the passage over unfamiliar or familiar terrain and the kind of feelings that evokes for you. Yeah. So um, one of the things I, I really tried to get across in Skyfaring was, was how um, there is a, a world above the world uh, that pilots move through. And that is, uh, that is mapped and controlled and, and regulated and, and that it has, um, you know, it has place names in it uh, that are, uh, you know, uh, very much like um, like any landscape that you would get to know uh, personally or, or professionally uh, down on the earth, um, and you know. So one of the 
one of the major ways in which the sky is divided it's is into these things called flight information regions and they are these kind of countries of the sky and you know there's six or seven um you know in northwest europe there's i don't know how many there are in the us 10 or 14 or something like that um, and they have names usually and usually they're named for cities um so they have this you know there's this quality of when you're uh you're coming back uh, across europe to london and and the last uh, dutch controller says to you you know contact now london and, and you call and you call the city i mean you you literally use the city's name to speak to the next controller as you move into their into london's airspace and uh, and then of course uh, many of those cities have far more evocative names even for, at least for someone from from my part of the world you know you fly over samarkand or dushanbe uh, or you talk to Lahore or Delhi, as I just did on my last trip. Um, and so you have this sense of, uh, of cities kind of casting these, these shadows up into, these, into the sky and defining, defining the sky above them uh, in a way which um, it, it was very unexpected to me when I became a pilot. And then there are waypoints, which are these, uh, um, these five-letter uh, coded uh, uh, positions in the sky uh you could think of one called logan or tulip or you know they have all sorts of names um often they're named for uh you know for sports figures in that city or or for uh you know tourist uh, attractions or something like that um and often they're just completely random they just want to be they want them to be easily pronounceable to to whatever your first language uh and so an airway that you might take you um from london to cape town for example there's probably a whole series of airways that you'd move from one to the other as you went uh, and they will be marked out um, along these waypoints, which form a kind of um, a, a kind of wayfinding in the sky, a kind of signposting, and a, a measure of your progress. Uh, often, uh, you might air traffic control might ask you to report at a certain waypoint, uh, and and you would tell them, "Yeah, we're just passing this waypoint at, at this altitude." Uh, and so, the the sense that the sky above is filled with its own geography, which um, you know, next time you're you know, you're just walking in a in a field outside your home or you, you could look up and just imagine uh, try to imagine the lines and the places there that exist um virtually but 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 quite importantly for the pilots whose job it is to fly through the skies i think there's also something very interesting about it's very spiritual experience you're kind of flying through the air at night yet the communication with with these different cities as you're flying over is so matter of fact so there's there's no wasted words as you're as you're talking to these people so it's you're having this very emotional experience transcending space and time but you're having a very transactional uh conversation on the ground right yeah yeah and and you know the language of flying is um is something i i've written a few articles about and it's 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 compactness has its own kind of poetry to it you know there's no fat on it at all uh as you say and and therefore um you know and if, if you're inclined to sort of minimalism then um you know the, the simpler it is the more evocative or the more poetic it can be um and and certainly you know aviation in general i think combines combines sort of technical um prowess or or, or engineering qualities of efficiency and compactness and um with uh you know our oldest dream of taking flight and and that the interplay between that between the scientific and the romantic is uh is something that i uh, i really wanted to capture uh, in skyfaring and, and in imagine city as well but i think you know i think it's not often appreciated how 
how much kind of romance there still is to the job. Uh, uh, and, you know, that doesn't come into the actual job. I mean, it's not a part of anything we do formally. And yet, um, I, I do think it's an attraction to the job for many people. I also think that what's what I love about your writing is you're still in love, right? Sometimes as I'm walking through, um, you know, an American city uh, airport, I see a very beleaguered American Airlines pilot or United captain, and these guys have been running hard for a long time, and I and I there's not a lot of healthy things to eat. They're in this kind of like um, liminal space, and I just feel like it has to be a little taxing on the body and the soul, um, which I'm sure it is for you at times. But it feels like that there still is a a love for both the poetic and as you write in your latest book, Imagine a City, the uh, the exploration that it affords and like the the expansiveness that that you, you kind of get to see. Yeah, you know, I one of the reasons I, I I I've enjoyed writing about flying is that you know even for me with perhaps a slightly romantic um, tendency to um, when it comes to thinking about my job, you know, even for me after a certain number of years, you start to to get accustomed to things. I mean, uh, you know, I've seen the the, nor the Northern Lights. I mean, every, every winter I see them dozens of times. Um, and uh, you know, when I have some friends, you know, they're going to you know are going to Norway or, or or somewhere Alaska to go see the Northern Lights, and and you think these people are making a journey of, of a lifetime to see something. I see basically every on on most night flights in the winter, not all, but but most, um, and you know, you start to get used to that. And I, I wanted to, to, to not get used to it um, and writing about it, you know, trying to share my enthusiasm for it and, and, and in particular trying to describe it um, is something that feels a little bit like a mission to me, um, both because it helps me engage with, with readers, but also because it maintains my own, um, you know, my own interest in it as time goes on. And, and it reminds me that these things are unique. Uh, and, you know, uh, I just saw a tweet, um, by uh, an American journalist who was on a flight somewhere, and and he was lamenting that on on a transcontinental flight there were only two people, two or three people who had the window the window blinds open on a day flight, uh, and you know people, you know people have screens. Of course, there's so much they have work to do. Of course, um, people want to sleep, but I I do want to remind people that if they do want to look outside or at least think about what they're about the activity of flying, that um, it's 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 reliably full of wonder, <laughs> I think I would say. There's a great book that I'm sure has come across your radar. Uh, Alain de Baton wrote that book called A Week at the Airport, and, uh, and, he, and he managed to find this. He, you know, he was basically embedded at Heathrow um, for a week, and he's such a wonderful writer and observer and a philosopher and was able to find so much beauty and so much interpersonal um, stories, just kind of being an observer at the arrivals area of the airport. And, and which seems like it, it could be a fairly trite conceit, but he managed to really pull out some like beautiful threads with it in a, in a nice way. And what I wanted to also talk to you about is, um, you know, for a long time before you moved to the 787 Dreamliner, you were flying on the 747 and going back to Pan Am and going back to a lot of the kind of days of the 
jet set, the beginning of of the ability to kind of traverse the world, this particular aircraft played a huge role. Um, so I would love to know a little bit about your relationship uh, to the 747, both as a pilot, perhaps aesthetically, what it feels like to fly and, and, and also just about your emotional connection to the history with the, with the aircraft. Well, yeah, first of all, I'm a huge fan of, of Alain de Botton and his writing. And, uh, um, he's, uh, he's been a big supporter of my own writing actually. As for the 747, you know, it was, you know, one of my friends that I did my training with, she didn't, when she was growing up she didn't want to become a pilot she wanted to become a 747 pilot like it was that specific for her as a child um and i i didn't for me it wasn't quite that um quite that um powerful a force but nevertheless it was it was the plane that that i loved and that i recognized most of the models or the models i like best that i made let's say were of 747s um my first the first flight i can remember it was not the first flight I can remember, but the, but the most meaningful flight, early flight I took as a passenger was on a 747 uh, to a KLM uh, flight to Amsterdam when I was uh, 14. And, you know, I I think because I was going by myself and I, I was far more interested in the experience and it was a sort of heightened experience, literally, because um, I was without my parents. And I remember seeing that beautiful blue plane, you know, in those great colors um, uh, parked at, at you know, JFK and, and stepping onto that just felt extraordinary. And, and of course the plane, you know, it really changed, um, you know, it changed the world. Uh, it, 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 it shrank the world, um, in a way that, you know, computers do as well, of course, but the 747 made it possible for, for long haul travel to be, uh, you know, a sort of middle-class ambition, um, which it had never been before. And, and of course it's, it's entered the culture, um, in all sorts of ways, like, you know the, the Joni Mitchell has that song where she says, "You know, I, I dreamed of 747s over, over geometric farms," um, and you know, I once was at an exercise class. Um, I, I think it was in Vancouver at our hotel in Vancouver, and at one point the instructor was saying, "You know, I think we were like lying on the floor," and she said, "Wanted us to lift our arms and legs up," and she's like, "You know, lift lift them up like a 747 taking off," <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, and um, I love the A320, but nobody's ever going to say that about an A320, I think. And, uh, you know, Norman Foster called it the 20th century building he admired the most. Um, uh, you know, and it was just the shape of it. It, it was so bird-like, uh, you know, the, you know, lifting the the flight deck onto onto um, another deck uh, was designed for, for cargo. I mean, it was designed to make it an possible to load uh, the nose uh load cargo through the nose because they thought that the future was going to be supersonic travel um, um so that shape was you know a pure engineering solution and yet to me it made the aircraft you know a, a unique in terms of how it looked and b quite bird-like it looks like the head of a bird to me it's still you know it still does um so i i i loved it and you know if you're you must have had some amazing 747 experiences yourself over the years you know um i just remember flying uh when Cathay had them you know on the on the upper deck and then obviously on uh on BA 747s on that little um upper deck where it just feels very private you know it it, it feels like you're completely like on another plane and and for me just the aesthetic of it i mean obviously there's the um 
the enduring symbol of of you know Air Force One and the the colors of that and the way it looks um, you know on a tarmac. Uh, but there's just something about the aesthetic, but also the emotional um, the emotional role of the plane, as you said, um, kind of kickstarting this this new ability for us to traverse the world. Um, and and thus, it's not just you know aviation nerds that are obsessed with it. I think that it kind of has transcended uh, transcended a lot of other things and kind of captured a lot of hearts as well. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, today we can get a glimpse of practically any city in the world through our phones, through Instagram. Um, but you've explored the question quite often, has the city changed or have I? Um, which I, which I really like because when you have a geographical cadence or recurring cadence with the city, you notice its evolutions. What city has surprised you, um, you know, coming back or evolving? For me, I would say Singapore, um, given given the kind of recent geopolitical <clears throat> realignments of the world, the pace of development that's happening on a very small, you know, stretch of um, island based city state. But is there any um, are there any cities that you've been frequenting that the evolution or devolution has has surprised you i think from a purely visuals and i mean obviously we we, we approach cities from the sky so the way they look uh, from above is you know is their first impression for us as it is for many passengers um and you know the the kind of explosion in skyscrapers all over the world over the last 20 years has just been you know really striking i mean in london where I, which i fly over you know multiple times a week um the the new skyscrapers in the city and um you know and down along the um the south bank have just been you know i, I kind of lose track of what they are now i think oh what is that what has that been there for a while um and then of course um dubai and miami both have had um uh, you know really striking um skyscraper skyscraper booms but i i think maybe the best the best um answer to your question is probably around delhi um so when I first went to Delhi, they had just begun building a metro, um, and um, since then it's been you know developing very very quickly. Um, and it, it's a really you know I'm a bit of a I'm not just an airplane geek I'm also a bit of a sort of general transportation geek, um, and so you know I really noticed the transport in the city and how easy it is to use and uh, how how um, you know just how nice it is basically I guess and how convenient um, and Delhi's system is marvelous and you know, for for people who are traveling to a city the size of Delhi, you know, it's not one of the largest cities in the world, um, you know, it, it is not a, an easy place to find your way around um, at street level. Um, and, you know, it's, um, you know, it's cacophonous and often warm and, you know, it's, it's um, an exciting place, but it's not the, it's not necessarily the easiest place to get around. And I've, um, have been really struck by how much that's changed uh, as the metro has been developed there, and how how much freer even I, um, someone who's been there dozens of times, how much more likely I am to go to a distant part of the city because I can get there on the metro, and to watch um, you know one of the largest cities on earth kind of construct that almost before my eyes um, has been a revelation and a, and a joy. I, I was just in Delhi last week or two days ago, in fact. Um, and uh, was again struck by by how nice it is, and you know, 
every city should have a metro as nice as Delhi is, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I was I was actually quite impressed with um, the transport that they put into Doha, you know, for the for the World Cup, like the actual um, underground or MTR or subway. I, don't, I forget what they're calling it. Um, they did a shockingly good job with that and it actually did an amazing job during the world cup kind of getting people from stadium to stadium but going back to dubai um that's a great point i saw a time-lapse video the other day of there's an old white sort of toyota building which was one of the first sort of like executive offices in um in dubai i believe on sheikh zayed road and it just basically had a time lapse of of that. And <laughs> I that would love is, to see that. <laughs> it's it, I, I should find it for you because it's it's unbelievable and um, what a pace of uh, what a pace of growth there. And it's also, for my money, probably one of the more spectacle types of uh, places to to fly over. You know, as you're coming in because you have the man-made islands, you have the Burj, etc. One of the most surreal um, trips. That I took is at one point um, I I hadn't really this was like in the early 2000s maybe I hadn't spent a ton of time in the Middle East and I did go on a business trip from um, from I think I was in Munich and I needed to get to Seoul and uh, the team was like oh here's your options to fly and one of them was like you know whatever Aeroflot or something it was like pass. And, and I flew Etihad and I and I remember just like flying in to Abu Dhabi, you know, in that in that, you know, amazing color of the water. Um, you see some of the man-made islands that, you know, Gursky that has famously kind of photographed and just feeling very otherworldly, you know, in 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 the connection. Um, and at that point, still Abu Dhabi hasn't opened up their new airport yet. And it, it still is that old, weird. Um, kind of older airport, but what an amazing kind of cross section. And that's what I really love about these Middle Eastern airports is they're they're such an incredible cross section of so many different cultural operating systems, right? And uh, I always get a kick out of I believe it's Terminal Two in Dubai because you have you know guys flying into Kabul, you have kind of Russian Orthodox over here, you have all sorts of different sort of tribal characters you have people flying to tbilisi it's like i've always wanted a a street style photographer to post up in that in that particular terminal for some time but what i wanted to ask you is you know with with airports you know as as a as a frequent user and i you know i've always liked how tyler brule at monocle talks about like the department of first impressions as you're kind of arriving somewhere what are the airports that you really like um from a feeling level a visual level or just a general, you know, pragmatic level? You know, I would say that there are some airports we go to where, um, you know, just, just on a pragmatic level where, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, well, Seychelles, for example, where, um, you know, you can walk through the airport in about three minutes. Um, and that just means you get to your bed faster. Um, <laughs> um, or in the, you know, when you come back to the airport, um, you get to the aircraft in, in just a few minutes. So, so small airports do have that going for them. But um, I think the direction of your question is more about the, the sort of, um, the sort of feel of, of greater, you know, great as in large airports. And I guess, um, 
you know, um, the new airport in Beijing, um, Dajing, uh, which opened uh, four or five years ago, I guess. I wrote about it for the Financial Times, actually. Um, and it, you know, it was just um, the the halls of the interior halls of it, the arrival halls of it are are extraordinary. And um, it, you know, it's it's a cathedral to planes, really. And and which is saying something, given the Capital Airport, um, the the one that was opened uh, for the Olympics, is itself. Um, uh, one of the more striking airports you'll go to. Um, I love um, Vancouver's airport. Um, it's very, very calm. It's um, they have like a big water feature in the in the arrivals hall, which is um, and I think um, water is one of those things that just naturally relaxes people. I think they have an aquarium as well. Um, you know, um, I will actually say, um, unbelievably, perhaps I went to um, LaGuardia recently, and I was really, really impressed with it. They've put in an, a ton of money there. Um, and I, it was it was um, it was a real joy to 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 see New York uh, having an airport um, that's been you know changed uh, that much. And Boston, uh, the other one to mention is Boston uh, Logan. They're building a new international terminal, which hasn't opened yet, but it's going to open um, later this year. And I've seen it. I've been I fly to Boston all the time, and I've been watching it rise. And um, it's it's red. It has this very striking color, as opposed to just being a box of um, marble and glass and steel um it has a bright red color and i, I can't wait to get inside it so um so stay tuned <laughs> you know uh for me there's just something about hong kong um i believe it was norman foster but there's something about the use of the light there's something about how like the sort of tail fins of aircraft are like framed beautifully amongst these very verdant hills. And there's also just something about that airport that doesn't feel kind of claustrophobic, right? There's other airports like Hamad and Doha that almost have a casino like feeling where they're actually, you don't know if it's day or night, you know, kind of by yeah, design. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's something to me that I'll always love about um, Hong Kong. And also I think that they've just been so inspired with, Cathay has been very inspired about the designers that they've always worked with, with some of the lounges. Like I found out a few years ago that John Pawson, uh, the designer did their first lounge there, which has now been redone by, um, Ilsa Crawford, but, but just that, that standard of, um, knowing the designers that can interface well with that foster vibe. Um, and there's just something about it. And also I was, I was talking the other day about, I love that um, passengers can check in with all their bags like in town and they yeah, just get on, yeah. the, on the plane. That, that, used, that and, used to be more of a thing, right? They, they had that in Tokyo for a while and, and even at Paddington for a while. Um, I don't know what's uh, yeah. what's happened to that. Yeah. It might be a security thing or it might be a COVID thing, um, but I know that Dubai just, uh, Emirates opened a in-town check-in at DIFC so people can like drop their bags. But yeah, I, I just like when a lot of these airports are just trying to make themselves more efficient and make it, make it easier for kind of tourists to get in for business travelers to get in. And I do think that there's a big point to this, like, you know, department of first impressions, right? If you're an investor coming to spend money in a place, it's like, how are you treated, you know, as you, as you're getting off that 787. I wanted to talk about two more topics. Cause I, I know, um, you have you have much to accomplish today other than just talking to us, but I wanted to talk about future pilots, right? So 
Um, what is it like be, becoming a pilot today? There's some labor shortages. Like what, what do, um, what do companies need to be thinking about? Um, what, what advice would you give to a future pilot? That's a good question. Um, so, you know, I think worldwide there is the pilot shortage. Um, I think that's, that's something I read about all the time. Um, and, and so, you know, for that reason alone, uh, um, that would suggest it's, it's a good career. Uh, I get a lot of emails from people who are, um, in their, let's say late twenties to late thirties who wanted to become a pilot when they were a kid, they didn't do it. And now they're quite far along into another career. Um, often they're very successful, um, you know, lawyers, accountants, that kind of thing. And they want to know whether it's still possible. Um, so I would say to them that, yes, it is possible. And, and, uh, you know, I, I was 29 when I, when I started flying and that was when the retirement age was 55. So that's the, now it's 65. So, you know, that's equivalent to starting at 39. Um, and, you know, I would also say to, to younger people, um, you know, I don't, I don't really know any pilots who don't like their job. And that's quite a th thing to be able to say. Um, you know, I have friends who work in all sorts of fields and in, in, in finance and, um, you know, in healthcare, and they all, they all would say on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. Uh, about their jobs, and sometimes the other hand is 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 the is the dominant one, <laughs> um, and you know I, I don't really know of another job that people seem to enjoy so much, and I think that's that says something, right? I mean, um, that's uh, if I had heard that earlier, I might have gone into it um, even earlier than I did, um, and then you know there are also just some um, preconceptions uh, about about uh, you know first of all you don't need to have um, twenty twenty vision, uh, you can. You're allowed to wear glasses within limits, um, and uh, you know, and you can you can do it. Um, you don't need to do it at 20 either. You can do it at 30 or 35 or even older. Um, and yeah, that that would be my main points of advice. Uh, and of course, uh, if you're a, a young person still in school, uh, you're going to need some math uh, or some or some maths, as they say here, um, and and some and some physics. Um, and uh, yeah, you're going to need a good record uh, if you want to get into it. Now you have me thinking, you know, there's still a chance for me at age 42, but definitely, you know, there's definitely think, a chance. I, I think the, I, the physics, the physics thing could be a bit of a problem, but you know, if there's an app for that, I'm sure. And in fact, um, uh, British Airways just reopened its cadet training program, uh, this week, uh, for the first time since, you know, in a while, I mean, I, I went to that program in, in 2001 and, uh, it has just been reopened. Um, and that will be for those in the UK, that will be, uh, important news, I think. So, um, that's, and I, I that's fantastic. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to end on a more sort of expansive note. I, I want to, I want you to talk to us a little bit about the worldview that has been afforded to you, you know, by this ability to travel the world, to kind of feel these feelings of, of moving beyond these waypoints and these, you know, these conversations with strangers throughout the sky and also the ability to kind of feel the pulse and feel the people of many places, you know, how has it shaped you as, as a human being? You know, we see the world from above as pilots. Uh, and, you know, I just, I just flew to Delhi and, and I, I couldn't even begin to list the number of cities we saw at night. Um, you know, scrolling past, and that you know, cities from from above at night are are one of my favorite sites. They're 
you know, simultaneously biological and technical. You can you can see how they fit into their landscape or on a on a major harbor or along a river uh, downstream from other cities and upstream of others. And um, and you know, and of course, we see um, the continuity of the natural world from one place to another. Uh, you can see that if you um, you know, what are the landscapes that lie between one city and another if you're flying uh, during the day? And 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 that can encompass, um, you know, a good portion of the planet on a long-haul flight. Uh, and then, of course, we land in these cities and, you know, we have a really unique experience of them, which I really tried to get across in the new book, which is, you know, when you, when I was a business traveler, you would land and you would go straight to work and you'd be in a hotel and then you'd have meetings um, throughout the day and then dinners with clients or customers and you know then you'd go and do it again uh, the next day and maybe go to another city and you know it's kind of easy to forget where you were and and hard to really take in the place you were in uh, and then of course if you go to a city as a tourist which i which i still do of course as a personal traveler uh, you have a you know you have a bucket list of sites you think uh, you know, so many people are coming to Europe from the U.S. this summer. You know, you're going. You might be going to Paris, and you know, you might reasonably think this is the trip of a lifetime. I may never, I never, may never be in Paris again or, or Istanbul again. And and so you want to do everything you can uh, in that time. And and you know, I'm just like many other people. I can tire myself out and 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 um, kind of stop enjoying it or stop realizing where I am or, or the scale of the journey that I've made a journey in, in a few hours that would have been um, all but impossible for most of human history and, uh, and might've taken weeks or months until, until the last um, 200 years or so. Um, whereas when we go as pilots or, or as cabin crew, uh, you know, we land in a city and we are, we don't really have to do anything there. Um, we are free to kind of explore it and we don't have meetings. And we also know that we're going to come back again and again. Um, you know, the first time I went to Beijing, um, some of my colleagues were going to go up to the Great Wall, uh, and I'd never been to Beijing or I'd never been to China, I think. Um, and I thought, oh, I want to, of course, I want to see the Great Wall. And then, but I knew that I was coming back to Beijing. Even on that first visit, I knew I was coming back a few weeks later. So I was able to say on the first day, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna walk around. I'm gonna walk around and, and find a cafe and and walk through this park and then along this portion of the old city wall and um, and just get a feel for the place in a way that's. Um, that's relaxed and and kind of brings out the um, you know the commonality uh, of cities as well as their uniqueness and that's really what I've tried to capture in my writing um, and you know if skyfaring was was from was about the the life in the sky then this new book Imagine a City is more about um, the life on the ground uh, all over the world um, giving, getting an experience of cities which is probably unique in human history and and trying to share that with readers or customers as best we can well thank you very well put and um i would highly recommend that everyone goes and buys skyfaring and the newest book which is called imagine a city um mark thank you so much for joining us today um we're very appreciative we covered a lot of ground and uh it was an absolute pleasure having you on Oh, it's been a pleasure, Colin. And um, speaking of having you on, I hope to see you on a flight someday soon. Sounds good. I'll be there. Mark has generously sent us a passage from one of his books, which we will conclude our podcast with today. Thanks so much for listening. So th this is a passage from the introduction to Imagine a City. And I I'm s sitting in my hotel room in Abu Dhabi, uh, thinking about uh, what cities have meant to me and what my job as a pilot means to me. 
Um, and in the next passage, I also mention uh, my hometown, uh, Pittsfield in Massachusetts, uh, which uh, plays a small role in this, uh, in this new book. Most pilots love their job and tend not to want to retire when the rules say we must. When my days and nights of flying are finished, I want to be able to remember all I can about the cities I saw. In addition, while years may remain before my retirement, I'd like to share now what I love best about many of these cities, not only with my family and friends, but with readers who might not travel as often, as far, or in as extraordinary a manner as a pilot does. And extraordinary is the right word. Long-haul airline pilots today are given an experience of cities that no one else in history has ever had. Two decades into my career, in an age in which it often seems that the urbanized future of our civilization is taking form directly before my eyes, my experience of cities as a pilot remains a source of deep fascination to me, one that's distinct from my love for flight itself. During a single flight, we may cross above dozens of cities, most memorably after dark. On some journeys, the lights of a sleeping and apparently silent settlement beneath us, one that, if it doesn't have a major airport, we may not be able to name without consulting our navigation charts, suggest Coleridge's ancient mariner passing like night from land to land and the fragility and even the loneliness of what an observer arriving in our orbit might regard as only one more of the universe's strains of bioluminescence. On other flights, when I see a gathering of dim lights stitched into the far below floor of a Siberian or Nigerian or Iranian night, I'm struck instead by a sense of warmth, even intimacy, and by the possibility that I'm looking down on an evening much like the most peaceful ones of my Pittsfield childhood. Then we descend. If we do so at daybreak, the returning light allows us to see how wilderness, farmland, indisputably steep terrain, or thousands of miles of open ocean give way to our destination. One of the largest cities in history, perhaps, which has grown through its own long centuries, and which now, on this latest of its mornings, and in the last 20 minutes of our journey, expands to fill the jet's windscreen with a map-like view of its awakening streets. Join us for future Skift Ideas podcasts as we speak with the most creative and forward-thinking innovators in travel. As always, go to skift.com to stay up to date on the latest news and insights across the travel industry.